medical department only to go to the bench and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Darren, a doctor in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Patrick O'Halloran. Patrick is a sport and exercise medicine registrar in the West Midlands. He's the current match day doctor with the Worcester Warriors, as well as the England Women's Rugby Pathway doctor. Patrick is also a member of the NICE Head Injury Guideline Update Committee, And as part of his work on head injuries, Patrick has been involved in the development of the groundbreaking saliva diagnostic test of concussion. So thanks very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thanks very much for having me. So today we're going to discuss your experiences in the diagnosis of concussion in sport, with a special emphasis on your paper looking into saliva as an objective marker for the concussion diagnosis. Just following on from the Patrick, do you mind telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your journey to date? Sure. So I'm a sports medicine registrar and I'm based in um, in Birmingham. Um, I was previously a GP uh, and during my general practice training, I got into uh, working in, in rugby union. Um, and it, it's really that that kind of kindled my interest in uh, concussion in particular, um, because I, I saw quite a few concussions and saw some quite confusing situations where you'd have players hit really hard and, and walk away unscathed. And then some players just have what looked like quite an innocuous injury and and, um, and develop quite marked symptoms of concussion. So that, that sparked that interest. And when I came to Birmingham um, for my sports medicine training, the opportunity to work on a PhD with a really brilliant team led by Professor Tony Belly at the University of Birmingham came up. And the project was really looking at salivary markers of of concussion to try and help with some of those diagnostic challenges that all of your listeners who work pit side will will have seen um, to try and develop tools to to make that a little bit easier and and, uh, improve the way that we look after these players. Sure. And as many of our listeners will know, concussion is it's always a hot topic but no more so now after euro 2020 which has brought it right back under the spotlight again why is it so important to be able to effectively diagnose or rule out concussion um, in football particularly that's a really good question I, i think in terms of why concussion is important you can look at it from a few different uh perspectives so in the short term Um, the reason why it's an important problem to get right uh, varies depending on who you're talking to. So if you're perhaps thinking about the performance of your player, performance has been shown to be affected um, after concussion. Uh, And indeed, actually, after players return from a concussion, you know, having seemingly recovered, um, playing performance can can still be affected. Um, and that, that's been demonstrated in a, a, a few different studies and a few different sports. So it's a consistent effect. Thinking about um, players themselves, 
there's some reasonable evidence to suggest that career longevity and career earnings are affected by um, by players experiencing concussion, uh, particularly in in collision sports. For the medical side of things. Um, Concussion comes with an increased risk of, of other musculoskeletal injuries, um, and that uh, risk stays elevated after a successful return from concussion for anything up to sort of 18 months to two years. So, so that's really something significant for us to be aware of in terms of how we manage these players and how we return them to play. There's also the, the um, concern, particularly in adolescent players, about a condition called second impact syndrome, which seems to be a phenomenon in, in adolescent um, athletes where if they sustain a, a concussive injury or, or um, good going head injury that's not recognized and then sustain another one before they've had a chance to recover, it can result in, in a, a catastrophic cerebral edema, which has a really high morbidity and mortality. So in the short term, you know, there are some really, really important reasons for us to, to kind of recognise it um, uh, and for it to be an important problem. In the longer term, obviously, there are some concerns about um, brain health uh, following concussion and following subconcussive impacts. So it's important that we're getting it right in terms of accurately quantifying exposure um, and making sure that we're uh, doing the best for player welfare in, in, these, these, um, in these athletes. So I guess those kind of cover across all sports, really. Um, but particularly in football, I think there are uh, sort of a, a, there's additional importance because it is a contact sport and part of the sport involves uh, head contact with the ball. So that if we don't pick up those injuries promptly and remove those players, there is potential for them to carry on playing, sustain further sort of head impacts. And that can be associated with um, longer recoveries and, and more protracted, complicated recoveries after concussion. I think the, the other thing, finally, that's sort of most important about um, concussion in football is that the participation rate in football is so high um, that although concussion isn't as common uh, in soccer as it is in, say, rugby or something like that, there are so many people playing that, you know, it still has the, the potential to add up to quite a significant burden. So I... I Hopefully, I've convinced you that concussion is an important problem um, for sort of coaches, for medics and for players. Um, and in terms of, of why it's particularly important in football, uh, you know, I think there's there's a, a lot to say there. Yeah, Patrick, that's, that's really interesting. And I guess it highlights the, the importance of research like that conducted by yourself and why it's so important going forward in the, in the management of concussion. If we just talk a bit more about your work, um, on small non-coding RNAs as a potential objective biomarker for concussion. Just for a bit of insight, what actually are small non-coding RNAs? Yeah, okay. Thank you for asking that because that's that's really important because when I was at medical school and sort of probably everyone more senior than me, uh, it, it wasn't taught on our curriculum. They, I, they weren't particularly well known about. Um, and that's changed now. I, I think they are appearing more in... in um, biomedical science curricula and things like that. But small non-coding RNAs are a, a class of cell-to-cell -cell signaling molecule. So they're very small pieces of RNA. And if you remember your basic science, your DNA gets transcribed into RNA, which is then the sort of template that's used to put your amino acids together and make a protein. Non-coding RNAs, don't actually code for a protein. That's why they're, they're uh, called non-coding. But what they do 
is influence the process of protein transcription. So they kind of get involved and most often they slow it down or they stop it. Um, and so that gives them a really important role in fine tuning. So they're, they're not as simple as kind of it's an on and an off switch, but they'll kind of get together uh, and have a really important role in quite subtle modifications to processes um, involved in uh, in the brain, in, in neuroplasticity, in um, synaptic kind of development and maintenance, uh, in interactions between the brain and the immune system. So they have a huge range of different functions um, and really, really important functions. The crucial thing, though, is, is that they were only sort of discovered in the 1990s, although they've been there forever, they were only discovered in the 1990s. And the technology to actually be able to measure them at scale um, ha has only been around and has only been sort of cheap enough to be viable over the last few years. So you'll see lots and lots of different research groups are looking at these things for a whole range of different diseases to try and see whether they can find markers for diagnosis and for prognosis. Um, and brain brain trauma is, is one area where where that's ongoing. Sure. And, and how is saliva important in this context? How, how do we link small non-coding RNAs to saliva? Yeah, so saliva is a really useful fluid for, for this kind of work from the point of view of it's really readily accessible um, and it's it's kind of it's acceptable to people to give a saliva sample. So when we're thinking about trying to develop a biomarker test for concussion, by which we mean, you know, an objective measure of something that will say, yeah, this person is concussed and this person isn't, as opposed to our current procedure of asking about symptoms and looking for signs. Some of the fluids that have been looked at include saliva, blood, CSF, urine. You can imagine that for sport, and especially if we're thinking about something which could work in community sport, Saliva is a, a real forerunner, a front runner, runner rather, because, you know, it's easy to collect and people don't really mind. They're not squeamish about giving saliva in the same way they would be about a blood test and certainly in the way they would be about giving a lumbar puncture. Now, there's a common sort of misconception that saliva is just a waste product, but actually it's tremendously active. Um, it has a whole range of functions in interacting with the gut microbiome, um, in interacting with our immune system. Um, and so the salivary glands in the mouth have an innovation directly from the brain via the cranial nerves. Uh, there's really rich blood supply as well. Um, and then um, they they therefore sort of have the, the potential to be really important carriers of messages coming from the brain. And that's what we think is going on in terms of um, small non-coding RNAs. The reason why they might appear in, in saliva or how they get into, into saliva isn't precisely known, but there are a few you know, pretty compelling theories on that, whether that might be um, crossing the blood-brain barrier and appearing there because of the really rich blood supply, or whether that might be directly traveling down the cranial nerves or, or stimulated by, or, or released, sorry, because of stimulation from the cranial nerves. Those are some of the, the predominant theories at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting, Patrick. And just building on from that, can, can you tell us a bit more about um, the study of concussion in rugby union uh, through microRNAs or, or scrum that you were heavily involved in? What were some of the main take-home points yeah, so the, the Scrum study was a, a really big um, collaboration uh, between a, 
um, the University of Birmingham, um, the Rugby Football Union, Premiership Rugby, um, University of Bath was involved, uh, and also Marker uh, Diagnostics, who were a, a spin-out company set up to, to kind of um, build on the research that's been done. And what we were trying to do was develop or identify um, diagnostic small non-coding RNAs in the saliva of professional rugby players um, who were going through the world rugby head injury assessment process uh, in, in professional men's rugby. So some of your listeners might be familiar with that, but um, basically that's a, a process which involves a series of standardised assessments um, uh, of players based on, on um, the measures used in, in the SCAT. And so what that allowed us to do was get very, very um, clear separation between groups of people who'd been assessed and found to be concussed and groups of people who'd been assessed and found not to be concussed. That's really important in terms of trying to develop a, a biomarker, because often what you'll find is a comparison between people who have been assessed and diagnosed with concussion and people who have just been uninjured controls. They've played, played a game, um, but nobody has actually examined them. Um, or they've played a game and, and nobody's had, a, had any concerns about them. Um, but that's not the population that you would actually use a test in. So using the, the head injury assessment process was really valuable in um, our study design. And what we did was we, we got saliva from people with concussion and people demonstrated not to have concussion. And we looked for the whole sort of micro RNA and small non-coding RNA content within them. And that allowed us to pull out the differences and tease them apart and then do some validation work on a second season of data. Uh, and the, the end product was that we demonstrated sort of proof of concept. It is possible to use a panel of non-coding RNAs to diagnose concussion in the saliva of professional male rugby players with a really high degree of accuracy. So we, we talk about that in terms of something called area under the curve, which is a, a way of conceptualizing um, sensitivity and specificity. It ranges from naught to one. So 0.5 is kind of as good as a coin cost, uh, a coin toss rather. Um, and uh, one is, is kind of perfect, 100% uh, accuracy. And so we were able to get to 0.96 um, as compared to the, the head injury assessment process uh, used in professional rugby. So that, that was super, super exciting in terms of demonstrating that this is possible, this can be done. Uh, and so our um, work was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine a few months ago. Um, and now our focus is to try and uh, develop on that and, and use this to build something which can be um, made available to, to professional sports, to amateur sports, to try and aid with their concussion identification and, and, um, and diagnosis, but also to try and look forward and see whether we can use some of these markers to predict how long a player might take to recover. Uh, and also, um, to try and guide their return to play. To, so to see whether we can use the normalization of, of these markers as a, a, an aid to um, a safe return to play. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Patrick. I, I guess the Scrum study just shows how far we've come in the last 10 years in the, in the surveillance and management of concussion and, and exciting times that lie ahead. Going forward, you know, what challenges might arise when trying to implement this test specifically in, in professional football, but also in other sports? Yeah, so I think, I think it's um, readily adaptable to professional football. Um, and actually, 
the value of the test is going to be different depending on the, the settings and the circumstances. So you can imagine that in um, something like community sport, where maybe you don't have medical personnel available, implementing something like this could be a really big step forwards um, in terms of uh, increasing the safety around concussion diagnosis. In other settings, maybe where there's very detailed surveillance already, so take, for example, professional rugby, um, this might be something which adds uh, another layer of assessment uh, and perhaps is helpful in um, equivocal cases in particular. So the, the impact that it could have will vary depending on the, um, the sort of sophistication and, and the complexity of concussion diagnosis in a particular sport. In terms of, of football, obviously, where there's no, um, uh, sorry, where, where the, the kind of game is live, then one of the, the um, kind of challenges will be to make sure that uh, a result is kind of available fast enough um, that it, it can influence practice. At the moment, the way that this would work would be a swab taken um, at the end of the game and a result coming back about 24 hours um, later. So if you, you assess your player post-match, uh, on a Saturday afternoon, you'd probably have the result back by Sunday morning. And so you can then use that to um, decide on whether they can return to training and, uh, um, or, or alternatively to, to kind of guide their uh, prediction of their return to play. And so one of the questions we get asked a lot is, is this eventually going to be something which is um, available actually at the pitch side to detect people in real time? The, the important thing to, to say on that question is that really it's two questions. So the first question is, do you think there's something that you can measure, um, you know, a few minutes after the injury, which can, can kind of tell you if someone's concussed or not? And the answer to that, I think, is yes, based on what we've demonstrated in the Scrum study. So, you know, the, the earliest time point we collected was about uh, 10 or, or so minutes after the injury. So that's a timescale that works in real time. The second part of the question, though, is can you actually uh, produce a result fast enough? You know, do you have the technology to produce a result fast enough that you could then, as a pitch side practitioner, action it? And at the moment, the answer to that is no. Um, but we're in really close discussions with a lot of groups who are working on the technology to do that, which has had a tremendous boost because of people trying to make rapid COVID testing. Um, and so it does feel like one of those things where it, it's only a matter of time before, before that will be available. So I think that that's, that's going to be um, a real door opening in terms of the, the uh, improvements that can be made to safety when something like that is available. But particularly for, for uh, the format as it stands now, you know, I, I think that this could be really, really valuable for, for um, professional football and for community football as well. Yeah, of course. And and Patrick, just, just to finish briefly, obviously it'll, it'll probably be a while before we see something like this implemented in professional football. As we approach the start of the 21-22 season, what more can we do in the surveillance and management of head injuries in the short term? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's, there's a lot obviously going on in this space at the moment, isn't there? We've had um, the, uh, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport select committee report come out last week um, talking about some recommendations for what we need to do in in terms of head injury in sport and then obviously yesterday we had the announcement of the um, sort of recommendations or the guidance on heading in training um, for players so it's it, it, there's a lot of attention on this at the moment um, and that makes it really hard for for practitioners uh, who are 
know they're going to be under a lot of scrutiny with this. I think that the main thing that's kind of, you know, we will look at concussion substitutions. We will look at technology at the pitch side to try and improve things in terms of video replay and video spotters. I think the major message that comes out loud and clear from the last few weeks is that the precautionary approach is, is what we need to apply in everything that we do. So making sure that we are um, being cautious in our management of players and in our decisions is probably the, the best thing that we can do to, to protect players and making sure also that we're being very careful in terms of our um, our assessments and our documentation of that uh, is going to be vital too. So if we're, you know, if we're relying on a tool like the SCAT, making sure that um, you know we're completing it in the appropriate setting in the appropriate time frame with appropriate reference to a, a baseline um, and that that then forms part of the player's medical record for for going forward are probably the, the most sensible and judicious things that we can do for, for the time being whilst we also try and engage with research into to further developments that can make things safer and, and keep sort of an open mind I think probably the thing that I've learned from um, my experience in rugby and football so far, and the thing which has probably helped to make my practice safer, has been not to, to rule out concussion until um, you know, you've had a chance to assess the player uh, one or two days after the, the injuries actually occurred. Because of the nature of it, symptoms can take time to develop and symptoms can be vague. And actually, you know, there's a big focus on thinking players are trying to hide things from, from medical practitioners. Quite often, players just don't recognise what, what symptoms they're experiencing that are abnormal as compared to how you would feel if you were playing, you know, top level football and so on. So making sure that you keep an open mind and reassess the player one or two days later is probably going to be the, the most effective thing to making sure we keep players safe. Sure. Yeah, that's some really good advice, Patrick. Patrick, thanks very much for joining us today. And um, that really was a fascinating insight into the developments around the diagnosis of concussion. And I think it's clear for all to see that exciting times lie ahead in the management of concussion. So for our listeners, make sure you keep an eye out for the next release of the FMPA magazine, which will feature a further insight into Patrick's groundbreaking work into concussion. If today's podcast was of interest to you, please subscribe to the FMPA on our Spotify and SoundCloud accounts, where you can listen to all of our podcasts. Alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free by the podcast section on the FMPA website. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.